Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today I'm back with my friend Mike Kaufman, Research Program Director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. Mike, you just got back from another research field trip to Ukraine. You even visited Bakhmut, where by all accounts things are pretty tough for both sides. A lot of casualties being taken on the Russian side, of course, uh, but the Ukrainians are taking heavy casualties as well. What was the logistics situation for Ukrainian forces there? How sustainable is the defense of Bakhmut? President Zelensky just announced that he's going to keep fighting for it. Is that really a realistic proposition? I think the battle for Bakhmut is probably the the one battle where Ukrainian forces face the greatest challenge. You know, there are a host of battles taking place around the Donbass. And one of the things you learn from traveling to Ukraine, you know, is that if you if you know one fight or one battle, that's really all you know. Uh, they vary quite a bit in terms of the situation correlation forces. In Bakhmut in particular, I think uh, the problem is that Ukrainian forces are holding Bakhmut or had been holding it quite successfully, but the flanks were slowly folding particularly the northern flank around the city. And the challenge was going to be that if if this continued, eventually Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut were simply going to be cut off. That is, Russian forces in the north would have direct line of sight and fire control and would eventually uh, uh, degrade Ukrainian access uh, to Bakhmut itself. Another big challenge, of course, Geographically, Bakhmut's a low ground, and if you go there, you see very clearly that it's it's a punch bowl, essentially, right? That Russian forces occupy the eastern heights around the city, Ukrainian forces occupy the western heights around it, and that uh, in the debate of whether or not it's better to defend Bakhmut or not, to be perfectly honest, it's quite clear that the that the territory behind Bakhmut, west of Bakhmut, is much better, Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. And Ukrainian forces can probably readily withdraw and entrench there. Uh, so then you have the natural question, well, why defend Bakhmut? I think Bakhmut was a really good battle for Ukraine from July onwards. I think at a certain point after Kharkiv and Kherson, both forces shifted to fighting in Bakhmut. And that became essentially the, one of the central battles in this war. And because of that, it then gained substantial political attention. And then uh, political capital was spent on Bakhmut, and so you had to some extent a sunk cost fallacy. So now you could debate whether or not, like any strategy, uh, defending Bakhmut has sort of reached diminishing returns, right? And and I think that's a fair fair question to ask. As Ukraine's situation, Bakhmut looks a bit precarious, and I'll be honest, it definitely looked that way uh, when I was there. I'm not saying Ukraine has to withdraw from Bakhmut. I'm just saying that that, that is definitely one fight with the Ukrainian position look challenging at best. The Ukrainian forces, I suspect, have at this point withdrawn from the eastern part of the city that's across the river and consolidated their position. But I don't honestly know what the plan is. And I think a lot of folks are wondering what Syracuse's plan is for defense of the city or if they're going to try to conduct a stage withdrawal or if they're going to reinforce. For a while, they've been reinforcing Bakhmut. And part of the reason why I think I think some months ago I began I began to be a bit skeptical about the battle. This was clear to a lot of Ukrainian folks that after the loss of Solodar, defense of Bakhmut was going to be very difficult, right? And so reinforcing that position was was one 
it's one aspect of the fight that didn't really play to Ukrainian strengths because it's such a static fight with trenches and it's such a grinding and traditional fight where you, I clearly saw the Ukrainian forces were low on ammunition, they were rationing, in particular artillery ammunition. And on top of that, you know, the Ukrainian military does best as a dynamic force and it does really, it does very well when they can conduct a mobile defense where units are able to figure out how to position themselves, where to put anti-tank guided missiles, where to put mines, where to displace. So they're not sort of in a very predictable spot for Russian artillery fire, let's say. They're not holding the same static trench line day in and day out. And Bakhmut is not that battle. Bakhmut's a battle that just doesn't play to Ukrainian strengths as a force. And you can see it, and you can see it there. It's a battle that kind of pins the Ukrainian military against an opponent that has superiority in artillery fires. So let's talk about the Russian side for a second here. A lot has been made of how Wagner is really is responsible for this battle of Bakhmut, but there are other units there, airborne units that are participating in the fight. And Wagner is not a uniform unit either, right? It's not just prison conflicts running towards the machine gun nests in the Ukrainian trenches. There's a lot more complexity uh, there, isn't oh, that right? Sure. Yeah, for sure. So, so first, Wagner's pretty well integrated with um, with Russian uh, airborne and other regular units. Uh, you have um, the 106th uh, Airborne Division that's backing them and has pulled up the Bakhmut. I think you have uh, a couple other regular units involved in that fight. You have um, essentially several different kinds of Wagner units, right? You have prisoner units that have a rudimentary command and control system that's being used. You have uh, the Wagner force that often attacks by day with series of assault attachments. You have another Wagner force that supposedly attacks only at night. And has night vision capability. So the truth is that, yes, the Russian military is using Wagner primarily and has traded a lot of kind of expendable Wagner forces in this fight with the, with the Ukrainian military for Bakhmut. But there are also other types of specialized Wagner detachments that are regularly used in assault. And so the prisoners are kind of used to soften up Ukrainian positions or to get Ukrainians to reveal their positions, right? While the assault detachments come later. And you also have regular forces backing them as well, right? And, and airborne's in this fight very much so, particularly in northern parts of the city. And they fight differently and also providing a good deal of their artillery support for Wagner troops. It's not just Wagner. They're pretty well integrated. And that's, it's kind of this myth that Wagner's its own separate entity. But in this operational direction, it's pretty clearly part of kind of a, a integrated task force, right? It's not fighting on its own as much as Prigozhin complains and makes it sound like there's there's like Wagner is on its own. It's very much not. Well, and Prigozhin has been putting out these videos and other communications on his Telegram channel saying that he's not being supplied with ammunition. His people are being locked out of staff meetings with the Russian military. But to what extent did you see the impact of that on the front lines. Did you see a reduced rate of artillery fire from the Russian side in support of these offensives by Wagner? So I had heard that in February there was a relative lull in artillery fire from Wagner's side, and it really picked up, I think, the week before we got, the week before we were there. So in late February, it picked up again. And uh, more Russian airborne units moved in. So that relative lull didn't last very long. And even though Prigozhin was publicly complaining about lack of artillery ammunition, 
Ukrainian forces were very clear that there's a distinct asymmetry between the fires they have available and the fires that the Russian side has available in the fight. And the Russian military seemed pretty advantaged on fires. So it was hard for me to reconcile those complaints, right, with, with the observed reality. I think there was a lull, but then it looked like um, Wagner did, did get the support he was looking for. The only other thing, of course, it tells me is, you know, how little influence um, Prigozhin really has if he has to make these public appeals in a desperate attempt to get some kind of attention rather than call somebody in power to resolve his problem. Yeah, we're talking about this. If he was uh, so close to Putin, you'd think he'd just pick up the phone and ask for help. But yep. uh, this probably means that uh, he's he's not as close to the center of power as many people have thought. Yeah, absolutely. That's, 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 what, that's always been my argument, so I have a bit of a confirmation bias in that direction. But I think the spectacle that Prigozhin has been making of himself is good evidence of how little power he really has. Well, and this also shows you how good Shoigu is at bureaucratic infighting, that, you know, he can cut you off from supplies, he can cut you out of meetings, and really potentially impact your, your operations. Uh, what about the Russian Air Force? There's been a lot of videos circulating on Telegram and other channels of increased SU-25 activity by the Russians on the front lines. Did you see that as well? Are the Russians getting bolder and using their Air Force to support the ground troops? Yeah, uh, definitely in Bakhmut. They are bombing in Bakhmut, particularly at night, so that they can avoid most types of man pads. There's only one particular man pad system I think Ukraine has that's effective at night. And so the Russian, the Russian Air Force has been making bombing runs. And even while I was there, I could, I could hear sort of the distant echo of Russian jets. Well, Ukraine Air Force is still up, by the way. Um, I saw some of them flying in the south, in the southern part of the, the southern part of Donetsk. I don't think the Russian Air Force is that effective, but it's clear that they are pushing more air power into the fight for Bakhmut, and they're also testing to what extent Ukraine has radar-guided air defense still up and available, because they know that availability of ammunition, basically missiles for radar-guided air defense, is a problem for Ukraine and has been since October. And so that's always been a potential problem that's waiting out there in the wings if if, if the West isn't good, isn't good at, at helping Ukraine resolve air defense issues. You can see that Russian air power is kind of playing in the margins, but looking for ways to push itself into the fight. All right, so let, let's step back away from the tactics and, and Bakhmut itself and talk about the implications for the broader fight here, because there, there are really two dynamics taking place here, right? If the Russians are able to take Bakhmut, what are the prospects for them continuing the offensive and heading towards Kramatorsk, Slavansk, maybe Kremina in the north, and utilizing the, the advantage of, of having taken it and, and gotten the breakthrough to take more of the territory? Do they have the resources to do that? How's the terrain looking like? And then second part of that question is, what are the implications for the Ukrainian counteroffensive that everyone is expecting to start maybe as soon as next month in, in terms of the attrition that they're so suffering? So on the Russian side, I don't think they have particularly good prospects. Not much in the way of momentum. Territory west and southwest of Bakhmut is pretty defensible. Doesn't really, yes, Bakhmut's kind of a gateway to Savannah's Kramators, but Russian military doesn't have any supporting access of advance. And I think Ukrainians actually have really good positions west of Bakhmut. I think the main challenge for them will be is the Russian military is getting melee turned north and pushed to Sivirsk and Bilohorovka and probably will look to take uh, control of all the territory north of Bakhmut up to the Donetsk River and then see if that can help them create greater pressure 
towards Liman as a supporting axe, basically supporting the current Crimea to Liman axis of attack that's taking place north there by 76 Airborne. I think that's the, that's the bigger issue. Other than that, Russian attacks on southern Donetsk haven't gone anywhere. The Avdiivka-Marinka axis and the uh, Bogodar axis, they, just, they haven't made any progress. So there isn't much of a concern for Ukraine of, of um, being enveloped. And, and most of these, most of these uh, city fights have basically gone as a set of envelopments, to be honest. So if Russians don't have a really good option to, to then conduct uh, an encirclement of the next set of positions, but there's not a lot there there. Um, yeah, I don't want to say the loss of Bakhmut is insignificant on the one hand. On the other hand, though, I think kind of there's been a lot of political significance layered on top of a battle where if the Ukrainian military loses Bakhmut, no strategic calamity is going to befall it, just being honest. Um, on the Ukrainian offensive and your question there, so that's a point of, 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 of heated debate. To what extent does a battle for Bakhmut consuming resources or manpower that the Ukrainian military is going to need for the offense? So my view is that I don't think it's as big an issue as I've seen it made out to be, but I do think that there is a, a, a core issue of quality of, of manpower that's available, force quality for Ukraine, that is coming to the fore because... One thing that's clear to me, having having been there, is that a lot of personnel in these units are now immobilized. And the truth is that a lot of the best people, the more experienced people in the Ukrainian military, uh, who have been fighting over the course of the past year, a lot of them have been lost. Right. So if you think of if you think of the force uh, as a whole, force quality and manpower availability is sort of a, a large pool. Okay. And these personnel are either going to the new army corps that are being built out with brigades for this offensive, right, that's going to take place later in the spring. Um, they're also going to replace the losses in Bakhmut on a daily basis. But, but it is one pool. They're mobilizing personnel to put into, into what, is, what is essentially the pool of available manpower. And over the past year, over time, you know, the quality of that pool and the level of training and the time they have available to train folks, right? It becomes worse and worse unless you do, unless you invest a lot to, to stem it. And most Western, most Western training programs are pretty anemic. They're very small in nature, right? They're not, this isn't like, if you look at the scale of losses and the, the sort of uh, churn that's taking place relative to what we're training, it's pretty small. And even new. So you're, you're talking new, about the programs where we ship people to the UK or Germany. Yeah. And so forth. And my understanding is that they're very short, maybe a couple of weeks, right? So there's they're, a limit to what you can learn during that time period. They're only a couple of weeks. And I asked different folks, I asked NCOs around Ukraine, like, what, what was their view of, of individuals they got from those programs? And, and the answers were kind of mixed, to be perfectly honest with you, of what people came back with skills-wise. I mean, yeah, it's only three weeks plus. What do you, you know, not, not, exactly, not exactly the ideal course lane to turn somebody who was mobilized yesterday into a soldier uh and we in the united states you know for example combined arms battalion level training we're doing about two battalions i think now per month well these corps are very large that ukraine is setting up for this offensive i mean large uh two battalions per month is not a lot relative to what ukraine's trying to build out do you think it's almost better for them to wait a little bit longer while the force is being reconstituted rather than to rush into this offensive and try to do it as soon as possible? I mean, asking kind of one analyst's opinion, um, 
from my point of view, yes, but you know, they, they have, they have their own imperatives and calculations behind what they're doing. So, yeah, I mean, there's a military battle. There's also a political battle, uh-huh. which has its own timelines and, and concerns. So they may not want to wait too long and give an impression that Russia is regaining the initiative in this fight. But from a military perspective, at least, Russian may not be the best idea, right? I, I think that the more time they have, to some extent, the better off they are. Uh, you can make a counter-argument that it also gives the Russian military more time to recast to the entrench. You could make another argument on that, which is to say that Ukraine currently appears very short of artillery ammunition and a sort of likely living off of what it gets, you know, per month from from U.S. and other countries that are supplying it. And that um, it, no matter how long they wait, you know, U.S. and other countries are likely to be, are likely going to make a big effort to provide them with artillery ammunition for an offensive, right? There's no other way. Ukraine, Ukraine's fundamentally an artillery army. An artillery army without artillery ammunition has no go. This is a bit of a simplistic and banal point, but just to put, just to put it plain. So you can give Ukraine as many tanks as you like, but if they don't have artillery ammunition, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's another implication of the fight for Bakhmut, right? If they're expending their ammunition stocks on that fight that's less available for the offensive sure although although to be frank they would have had to have a fight somewhere anyway so if it wasn't bakhmut like wagner and, and the airborne would have just taken bakhmut and then said all right well that's all we have to do this year and then stop they would have just kept pushing somewhere else the, just the question is 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 the battle now more advantageous or less advantageous for ukrainian forces my view is if you look at it through up until December, it was very advantageous and the exchange ratio was probably quite beneficial. If you look at it now, I'm going to say that, that probably Ukraine's not nearly that advantage in terms of loss and attrition, and it's not a great position to be, which is my own, my own opinion. And um, in, in terms of artillery ammunition, yeah, that's the second question. Do they have the artillery ammunition to, to hold Bakhmut? Well... You know, to be honest, that Kiev Independence story that came out a few days ago, talking about how they had 10, you know, mortar, 120-millimeter mortar rounds available per day. That didn't look off the That's mark. That didn't look off the mark. That actually tracked with a lot of things I saw and heard. So it's not a lot of artillery ammunition to defend with for that fight. And you can see that that battle alone is probably consuming a very large percentage of Ukraine's monthly artillery ammunition expenditure. Like a very significant percentage of it. One, one other thing that I've been hearing that could be a real issue, aside from the munitions for the howitzers, the M777s and other howitzers that the U.S. and Europeans have provided, is the barrels themselves, that the Ukrainians are really going through them very quickly, particularly at the rate of fire that they have, and replacing those barrels is, is, a, is a major concern as well. Yeah, it's a secondary problem. Um, the good news I will say is that uh, Ukraine has been able to online the ability to not necessarily kind of build their own barrels. Don't get me wrong; that's not that's not something they can do. But to to fix a lot of the artillery we have supplied them, and that's come online domestically at home, as opposed to having to ship it to Poland. I think that's come online as of the latter part of the fall. And so Ukrainians are now able to repair a lot more of the equipment we have provided them, which I think is pretty neat. It's a fairly recent development, and I myself did not know about it until I went, and it was pretty, 
pretty interesting, exciting to hear about. But and, but there's a lot of artillery pieces that they don't for various types of repairs that so they don't have to ship all the way back to Poland now. So that and that aspect was getting better. But barrel wear, it's an issue. And you know, ammunition, the problem was that Europeans will talk a huge game about production capacity and what they can make, but they didn't issue the contracts to make these things happen. Okay, last year. So this is kind of this is all up there in in terms of fantastical potential. But in reality, they can't come up with ammunition during the decisive period of war. And then everybody's going to come up with ammunition Ukraine needs in 2025, by which point it will be way too late. Right. So well, that, that, that I think is part of the issue is that there is no short term solution. You, you can't ramp up massive production of ammunition, 155 millimeter and, and others in a month. And you're looking at something that's going to contribute maybe two years down the road. And I think a lot of people may be looking at that and saying, well, is the war still going to be going on two years from now? Is that something we really should be spending money on? So that might be impacting some of those decision makings in, in European capitals. Yeah. I, so the only, the only I would add is that, look, the only solution you can anticipate is maybe uh, United States and other countries you know, reach really deep, take on a tremendous amount of risk of what they have in their artillery ammunition stockpiles um, to help Ukraine this year. But after that, you know, I, I just worry that folks will be folks folks will be relatively on empty and they'll be down to whatever the monthly production is, right? Because they're not bottomless stockpiles. And the U.S. has been making noises about that for a while. And also, I'm pessimistic on because I actually, I suspect the, I but I, I do suspect that Ukraine will be able to conduct a major offensive operation. It's just a question. If you narrowly ask me, what do I think about the prospects for an offensive operation in the spring? That's one question, Dmitry. If you ask me, what about after that? Right? There's a summer, then there's a fall, then there's a winter. That part I don't know about. Yeah. What did you discover? in your travels about morale, both on the Ukrainian side, the soldiers you visited in Bakhmut and elsewhere, and then what do you hear about the morale on the Russian side and in the various units that the Ukrainians are going up against? I mean, generally on the Ukrainian side, morale is high. To be honest, I love hanging out with Ukrainians while I'm there. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just great to be around them. Morale, morale is really good and it's, and it's quite high. Um, I think it's obviously a lot lower in territorial defense forces and certain other parts of the force that often gets intermixed or commingled with regular units on deployments. You know, I think that loss, losses are significant in some battles like Bakhmut, and I want to be honest about that. Um, I think everybody knows people that have been lost, and a lot of the better folks people knew over the past year have been lost in the fight, but nonetheless, you know, Ukrainians keep going, and uh, they're fairly optimistic about their chances about their prospects. Uh, so I do, you know, I kind of enjoy a positive energy. I think, uh, as always, there are culture clashes in the military as the war goes on. I think the challenge Ukraine has is that um, there are parts of the force that are very young and dynamic at kind of the lower echelons, and Ukraine is really good at that, um, you know, platoon, company, battalion, command level. And then there are other parts of the Ukrainian military that look to me still kind of Soviet and ossified and very hierarchical and vertical command structure that doesn't like to do mission command. And I can sense them fighting a bit with each other. Now, and some fights are not uncommon in any military, right? Where folks at lower ranks are saying like, hey, I don't know what the officers are doing. And folks at the, at the higher level, at staff level, brigade command level looking like, hey, 
we have the context of the situation and we understand uh, what needs to happen and and whatnot. But um, but other aspects you can see is there's military culture. There's no culture clashes taking place because Ukraine's military is very much a military that has one foot um, set in the future in this kind of more Western-style dynamic force. Um, and by the way, I want to spell a myth. It's not because of amazing training that we've done from NATO. Actually, most folks agree that many of the people that were trained in NATO uh, have already been lost in, in this war. And that it's it's simply a difference, fundamentally a difference of culture between a military that does mission command and things like that by default, and then also a Soviet army that's well embedded in this military and has its foot in the past, right? And these are this is this is a continued struggle in the Ukraine military. And, and I'm I'm saying this to to kind of tease out some of the categorical depictions in the West, you know, sort of frozen in place tactically, Russian army can't change tactics, look really bad at Vuladar versus very adaptive, flexible Ukrainian force. And the answer is that some of that is true, but some of that is definitely not true about both of these militaries. With all the losses that both sides have sustained of their more experienced battle-hardened personnel, has this become basically a war of the mobilized? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. And and of the reserve officer. It's become a war of the mobilized and of the reserve officer who has come back to staff duty. Yep. And what are the implications of that for offensive capacity on either side? I mean, not great, to be honest, but um, it's about, it's more about one, intangibles, who wants it more. Second, who makes fewer mistakes, right? The Russian military is making a big mistake in this winter offensive that Gerasimov launched. They might make themselves substantially vulnerable for Ukraine offensive later in the spring. So it's in part about who makes bigger strategic mistakes, who exhausts themselves and drains themselves of combat potential. And then can the Ukrainian military establish sufficient relative advantage for major breakthrough? I don't know. That's the that's the question that's going to be that's going to be tested in the coming months. Uh, but it may not be, just to be clear, it may not be any one single operation, maybe a series of pushes the way Kerson went. Kerson was actually not one offensive, but if you you kind of drill down into it. There was a series of operations. And, and it took a number of months, right? It was pretty slow going for a while. So this yeah. may not be the lightning strike that some people are expecting to see, sort of similar to what happened in Kharkiv last year. Yeah, I actually don't think it will be at all. I think initially people would be disappointed because they'll be expecting to see some uh, major, you know, uh, operational thrust. And what's likely going to happen is more of a, a series of, of pushes press, pressing Russian forces. What other myths that are so prevalent in U.S. media and social media, et cetera, did you find just didn't hold true once you visited the front lines and talked to people there? Um, let me think. So, yeah, I, I think I think Ukrainians actually spoke a lot about Russian tactical adaptation, how the Russian military is a learning organization, and they're in an iterative cycle of them in terms of adapting, whether it's drone tactics, artillery, battery, counter-battery fire, uh, how both sides have learned a lot from each other during the war and continuously adapt to each other. And so the the kind of media depiction of one side as being like bad and, and ossified and, and the other side as being incredibly innovative and adaptive. Yeah, to some extent it's true, like I said, but to other extent it's not. That's only not the way Ukrainians see the Russian military, right? Uh, second, that, you know, in popular media depiction, Journalists go to one battle or maybe one one specific fight, talk to troops there, write up a narrative with some anecdotes, and then generalize that this is the story of how the war is going based on that situation, and that's just profoundly untrue. Like, if you go to Vuladar, you get one picture of the war, and if you go to Avdiivka, you get another one, and if you go to Bakhmut, you'll get yet another one, right? It depends on who is there, 
what the fight is like over there. Um, you can't just go to one battle and generalize from that situation what's happening in the battlefield. Hey, sorry, what's happening in the in, in the World War? That's why I said if you know if you know one battle, then that's all you know. And because these are different units, they have different kinds of forces involved. The correlations are fairly different. Some battles are more urban. Other battles have like completely open terrain, like Uladar. Some battles have huge concentrations of artillery, and others don't. Right. Some battles feature air power employment. Other battles do not feature that. Some battles have a lot of National Guard and TDF units. Other battles have airborne naval infantry, what have you, right? So, you know, if you look at Wagner tactics in Bakhmut, that doesn't look at all like naval infantry tactics down south in the Russian forces. Actually, two very different battles. You could even see two, in some ways, two different armies fighting that. And that's, that's the point I'm bringing. I, I know I, I would also love for it to be easy to go to one battle and say, hey, this is the war. But that's not what it's like. Um... What else can I say? So I think that in terms of media depictions and and kind of popular errors on accounts, I think Wagner is misportrayed. I think we definitely overconsume the uh, Verdun, like Passchendaele, and some of these other analogies that are quite that were quite prevalent. Because yeah, there's an aspect to that to to Wagner tactics, but actually it's a fairly adaptable force with some pretty interesting uh, force structure innovations on how they use different types of detachments. And it poses a real challenge to how Ukrainian military fights, and they all recognize it, particularly because the Ukrainian military can't fight the way it wants to and has to hold fixed positions. And that's part of the challenge that they've had there. And no, it's not a force that just attacks and waves by day. That's very clear, too. Um, they're, just not, they're just not the reality uh, at Bakhmut. So... I, I maybe that I mean I, I could go on and go go on and on, but these are just some of my initial impressions. So so we've talked a lot in the past about HIMARS, and you you've been sort of trying to dispel some of the fanboy commentary about HIMARS. Did you see any impact from HIMARS strikes when when you were out there? Were they a significant contributor to the fight in Bahmut at least? No, sorry, um, not really. All about artillery. Uh, different kinds of artillery, but it's all about artillery. Treat. And fights like that, it's a lot about mortar fire. Um, let me try to think. I mean, HIMARS definitely is, is thought of quite plausibly, but a lot of the big impacts from HIMARS have had been felt much earlier in the war, as to be expected. I heard some interesting mixed impressions of, of PGMs and uh, certain types of munitions. I would say one thing that's fascinating about this war is when you go you learn a lot of Ukrainian readouts about how our equipment is performing, how our munitions are performing, and those are very useful, I think, to us. Just as I'm speaking as an American, um, yeah. I think they're so very what, useful. What did, you, what did you hear on that front? I can't say. But all, all I will say is we, I think there's a great deal to learn from this war, not just about what's happening, not just about modern warfare or how Ukrainians have fought it, but also about the performance of our own equipment and some tinkering we need to do. Any other key insights, Mike, before we wrap up that you think the listeners should hear about? Um, look, I'd say that in general, looking at the war effort, the I came back in many ways having having some of my earlier views validated on a couple of big issues. First is that priority for Ukraine are artillery and air defense ammunition. Everybody there agrees as well, which is heartening to hear, right? Because sometimes, look, sometimes you're a thousand miles away and you have one pic- depiction, one sense of what's going on. And then you go there and you obviously hope that you're not going to show up there if people tell you, hey, you got it all wrong. Actually, the list is completely different, or it's in reverse order from what you've been saying. So that was good to hear. Um, after that, definitely the issue is force quality. 
and it's been an issue for some time and what to do about force quality and dealing with the fact that a lot of that force is mobilized, right? Um, and I think force reconstitution, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken about that for over the past year, but it's really coming uh, to the fore as a problem. Next, uh, armored fighting vehicles. We talk about them a lot. It's all a quantity numbers game. If you look at the size of the cores Ukrainians are trying to build, Dmitry, it's a lot of mechanized infantry and tank brigades in each one. That's just a lot of armored fighting vehicles. It, it almost doesn't matter what they are, to be perfectly honest. Like, Ukrainian units, brigades they have now, have been dramatically expanded. Some of them feature seven infantry battalions per brigade, okay? There is no mechanization for them. There isn't actually a lot in the way of mil military motorization for them either. So this military needs mobility to go on the offensive. It can hold defense all day long, right? A 7th Battalion Infantry Brigade can hold Bakhmut, can hold Vukhladar, don't get me wrong, and hold Marinka. But if you want that military to go on a major offensive in the south, it needs to be driving on something. So that's basically, I came away from that looking at the size of the U's going, dear God, that is a lot of, of infantry battalions, not on mobility, and also needs the logistics uh, to do it, and also needs breaching equipment as well. There are capability gaps because you see how bad Russians look at Bulgodar driving to the same minefield every morning? Okay, well, Zaporizhia looks like that. Like, Russians have probably mined Zaporizhia as best they can. So if you don't have breaching assault equipment that relative to your force, that's going to be a challenge. There's capability gaps there. Um, that's, that, that's all I'll say on that front. Um, yeah, beyond that, it, yeah, in many ways, I think it, it, it helped me validate my own views on some of the big, big issues that I thought uh, were the driving problems or concerns for the Ukrainian military. Some other ones, like I said, I learned about military culture issues, the things that happen when you lose a part of your force or a trained part of your force, then other folks come in from reserve, and, and you have these sort of interactions uh, also between, um, you know, junior uh, mobilized or NCOs and higher-level staff officers or reserve officers that have come in. What was the attitude of the troops at, at the front towards the West? You hear a lot of criticisms from Kiev that they're not getting enough support or it's not coming fast enough. Did you hear some of the same sentiment on the front lines, or was it different? No, I, I honestly... Listen, I, don't, don't, I personally don't hear it on the front lines. The... The main thing you hear on the front lines is Ukrainian military, like any large force in the big war, has internal distribution problems, okay? So a lot of their gripes have to do with their own logistics. It's not about what we... We give things enter Ukraine, but then all Ukrainian units have to find their way to getting those things. And there's a lot of challenges in that. And anyone who's ever seen a military operation, the best military operation with U.S. logistics, will see those issues, okay, where... One unit has one thing, another one doesn't. The supply base has things that are completely random and inane, but you can't get night vision goggles or you can't get these other things. And you're like, who has them? And then you have to find somebody who has the hookup and maybe you have to trade something to them for it and so on and so on. This is very common. But some internal distribution, definitely big issues there. Most of their gripes are internal. It's not, hey, the U.S. isn't giving us enough things. It's, it, it, it's much more of how... How do I get access to the things that supposedly we've been given? And also just a lot of people looking to kid up, to be perfectly honest. There's never enough kid. It's a large force. It's a growing force. And there's just never enough equipment for them. So they're all, they're all trying to kid up as best they can. 
Um, I didn't hear any complaints really about uh, specific things we've been providing or not providing. Um, I know what Ukrainian ass are at big, big picture, big level, sort of sort of higher level, but they they're very they're very frank and public about them. It's like they're trying to hide the fact that they need more artillery ammunition or more air defense capabilities and what have you. So that part that part's pretty easy. Yeah. Last question. And again, we've talked a lot in the past about Starlink and its importance. Is it still important to the troops in Ukraine? Are they using now other mechanisms? Are they going back to Viasat terminals? Or is it still Starlink all the time? It's all about Starlink. I'll just say that, you know, I hate, I hate the idea of game changes or anything like that. But if you're really for one enabling technology that's critical to the war effort, it is Starlink. That's it. I see it everywhere. It's essential. Uh, everybody has it. Everybody has a terminal. Um, an antenna. So I, I shudder to think what the war effort would look like without Starlink, just being asked. And, you know, we, we often talk about sort of the military applications of Starlink, using it for ISR, artillery correction, but you were telling me a story when you were in Bakhmut that troops were even watching a, a, a movie, right, during the break. So even having access to the internet for sort of downtime can help with morale. Sure. Sure, sure can. Yeah, so I was waiting to uh, waiting to meet somebody. Let's say at a CP in Bakhmut in a uh, in a basement, which is where where they all are. And the guys were watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm glad you got some entertainment while you were out there. Um, but you know, seriously, by the way, I will say this: one thing that's fascinating about Bakhmut is there are people still living there. And I ran to a number of them, and it was surreal. It was one of the more surreal experiences of my life. I can't imagine anybody actually being in that city, but there were ran to folks, some folks in apartment building saw people M- out mostly the mostly older people that just don't want to yeah. leave, right? Yeah. yeah. So people out on the street hanging out, having a cigarette, catching up, and it was just in the middle of yeah, I don't I don't know what to tell you, but it it's a it it's a it's an urban hellscape in terms of combat and, and shelling and uh a nonstop fire. So it was, it was one of those things that is hard to juxtapose unless you see it with your own eyes. Yeah. Well, Mike, thanks for coming back on uh, and sharing those insights. Always really interesting to hear from experience directly from the front and dispelling some of the myths that you may get from just reading the newspaper uh, that may not be representative of the overall fight. And pretty clear that uh, the next month or two are going to be pretty pivotal as the Ukraine gears up for their counteroffensive, and um, everything may yet change again. Thanks for me back it may change yet again as this war progresses.